Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I'm joined as I am two times a week. This edition, the Thursday edition of the the Chase Thomas podcast, the college football themed edition of the pod, where I'm joined by fellow University of North Georgia alumni, my good friend, Matt Green. Matt, good evening, sir. How are you? Good evening, sir. I'm just glad to be back talking ball, man. It is nice. It is nice to be talking ball because you were not happy with me over over the last few days. You haven't been happy on Twitter.com, getting into spats with South Carolina fans. Um, You just, uh, you've been busy. You've been, you've been fired up for for this weekend georgia bulldogs discourse i don't think i've been i mean that's just standard that's that's my mm. twitter activity is just getting sports debates with people i just i enjoy it a lot that's that's what we do here but, well that's what you do um, we are polar opposites worked up with south carolina fans have i well you were going back and forth in a south carolina fan comparing kirby to pruitt and um oh yeah that's mm. just People are so obsessed with the whole Kirby being must champ 2.0. It's like literally like Kirby's second season, like he should have squashed that by then. Like Kirby's worst year is is better than the must champ's best year. And must champ was a head coach for like a decade. It's just, it's weird how people kind of continue to try to like cling to, oh, Kirby, well, he's just a recruiter. He's not a good coach. It's like, well, for one, recruiting is like half of a coach's job, if not more. But it's just, People feel like they have these predictions about Kirby Smart and like they've been proven wrong time and time again, but they just kind of cling to them anyway. And like, it's just laughable to think like, I, I just can't bite my tongue. Like, you should bite your tongue when dumb people say things. But like Jeremy Pruitt was an awful head coach for like two years. Like Kirby Smart's like one of the best coaches in college football. It's just like, it's a laughable take. Mm. Well, you know, it uh, it is a laughable take. I would I would agree on that perspective. But South Carolina fans, they uh, they're excited. They uh, they have a bloodbath uh, on the horizon this weekend, so they got to get ramped up for William Bryce. Yeah, I'm sure they'll be uh, I'm sure they'll be amped up for it. But um, for their first loss well, this of the season, home. this game's at home too. So it's like mm-hmm. Williams Bryce. That's like South Carolina's only shot is like maybe the the atmosphere is hostile, but like Georgia fan, like Georgia players, I should say, they remember the 2019 game and like also the 2019 game. It's like, yeah, it's a win for South Carolina, but like Georgia played like garbage in that game, like outgained them by like 300 yards or something like Jake Fromm, like you've never seen Jake Fromm have like a three interception game his like entire career. Rodrigo Blankenship missing like two field goals. Like, literally everything and some like sometimes you force turnovers sometimes the the offense just gives you the ball and like two of the four turnovers Georgia had in that game were like fumbled snaps like dropped passes just directly to the to the defensive player like Georgia played like just absolute trash and it still went to overtime so like this Georgia Georgia definitely remembers that 2019 game and they're going to come out and stop south carolina it's like it's not even going to be a game like i don't care who's playing quarterback like it's it's not going to be close no i don't think so either um don't forget folks you can follow matt and all of his twitter spats on 
Twitter at Matt underscore W underscore green. Follow myself at Chase double underscore Thomas. Go check out sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com for all my writing um, right in there every day. So go subscribe there if you have not already. Support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. And if you like listening to Matt and I, along with the rest of the gang on the podcast, uh, make sure to give us a five-star rating interview on Apple Podcasts if you are indeed listening to us right now on Apple Podcasts. Um, we have a lot of news before we get into our picks of the week, our picks and predictions, Matt Green. We have, we have a lot of stuff. Clay Helton was fired at USC. Scott Thompson's out and definitely at K-State. Casey Thompson getting a start at, for quarterback uh, with the Longhorns. We got Auburn on the road and Penn State and Happy Valley. Like there's all kinds of stuff going on right now, but, uh, where do we start? I think, um, you know, I want to toot my own horn here. Clay Helton, I feel like I was I was clamoring for Clay Helton's job like less than a week ago. And it seemed, I don't know, it was less than 24 hours after we got off the podcast. USC was like, you know what, let's go ahead and cut ties here. I just, I mean, I guess you want to get a head start on finding the next person there. But like, it does kind of suck if you're a USC fan, right? Like now the season, like the Pac-12 and there, there's no Ed Orgeron to step in the interim spot to to keep this thing moving but i guess getting drubbed by stanford is enough to be like okay we're not really playing for anything but there is some there was like a dark horse possibility that they could play and find their way into the playoff this season um, yeah i just, feel like it was sorry i didn't mean to cut you off what are you gonna say well no it's just like now their season's just over they have the interim tag they're just looking for the next search and now you're planning for next year and next year is not coming for another full calendar year so now they just have to live in limbo and wait for what if and start all over Next year, I, I just, I don't know. I feel bad for Trojan fans in that regard because when you make this kind of change this early, I don't know. It's just like, oh, I guess, what is the reason to keep tuning into these USC games? Yeah, I agree. I feel like the timing of it is what is what I disagree with. Like, just, you're two games into the season. Like, yeah, the, the performance for Stanford was so uninspiring, but, like, that's why people wanted you to fire Clay Helton before this. And... Not only, not only that, you, you just like you can potentially bounce back from an early season loss. Like we talked about, how favorable USC schedule was this year. Like they could still represent the Pac-12 South. Like maybe they have an early loss, but just they right the ship. But like now, like you said, the season's already over. And then, like, did they not learn anything from the last time they they did this? Like they they're now they're going to give a guy another opportunity to potentially win like eight, nine, ten straight games or something. And then maybe is is he going to do enough to get to go from interim coach to head coach? Like, I feel like you're putting yourself in this exact same situation like Clay Helton was, and and he righted the ship, got people believing, and then so you you turned the interim guy into the long term guy. Like, just give him the full season and just see what happens. Like, let judge it by the whole body of work. It feels like they're they're giving themselves a potential to to do the same thing they just did. Like, I'm sure they won't just simply because Clay Helton was the interim and they're just not going to go down that road again. But it's just, I don't know. It's just an interesting, interesting timing uh, more than anything else. Yeah. I don't know. Who do you, who do you make of uh, who's going to be the next coach? Because it's probably not gonna be fickle. He doesn't seem like the guy who would make the jump. And also there are reports that he, I think Pat 40 of SI uh, mentioned this in one of his columns this week on, SI.com that Bone and um, 
Fickle do not have the best relationship and uh, like that's not probably a possibility of him moving over to Trojan land. There's mutual interest per Dan Patrick that uh, Penn State head coach James Franklin is interested in the job. This is the other, the com- this is the compound effect where it's like now that this job's open, if you're Penn State, like you, you need to be focused on Auburn this weekend. And now James Franklin's having to answer questions about his interest in the USC job. Urban Meyer's answering questions about his interest in the USC job at, in Jacksonville. And this is going to, until they hire a coach, guess what? This is going to be swirling around all these different programs. Penn State's got playoff and like expectations. Like they're trying to beat Auburn and trying to win the Big Ten this year with it, how open it is at the top. And now James Franklin, and if you're a Penn State fan, you're nervous because you're like, is is this it? Like, is he going to bolt midseason when we actually have a shot of winning the Big Ten? Like, it all sucks all the way around because it's not fair to these programs and these fans of these teams where it's like now we have to worry about USC poaching our coach like in September. Like, what? I waited a year for this. I don't want this right now. I don't want the coach swirling conversation to cloud a lot of these seasons. Yeah, that's so true. I think um, of those names, like those kind of first names I've seen thrown out there, like Franklin seems like one of the more realistic options of a guy who I feel like he could seems like he could work at USC. Like you, you've seen like Matt Campbell, Luke Fickle's name thrown out. Like I just don't, I just feel like those guys seem just so solid where they're at right now. And especially with Cincinnati going into the big 12, it's like, that's now a power five job. Like if you're successful at Cincinnati, you can get to the playoffs. So fickle, like, I feel like it would take the perfect job for, for him to leave. And Urban Meyer is honestly like the perfect candidate. Like that's why the Jacksonville Jaguars thing just seems so weird for him to, you know, try to get, uh, like try out the NFL. Like he's just such a college coach and USC just seems like the kind of place that he could immediately come in and, and just give them instant credibility. But obviously just being his first year, like we saw Nick Saban do it. Um, and just did not deny, deny, deny every time anyone asked him about going to Alabama and just get madder and madder about it. And then he ends up taking the job at Alabama. But I just, and it was obviously a good decision for him. So I won't rule out Urban Meyer for that, from that standpoint. And I feel like he would do so well at USC. But another name I've seen thrown out is Eric Bieniemy from the Kansas City Chiefs. Like that was one of the few jobs that he said he would go from the pros to college for but you know even if you do that like we talked about with Sam Pittman like Arkansas is his destination job like you USC is such a high high level job that like you don't want someone that like is just going to be gone in three or four years and as as much as Eric Bieniemy, maybe he's interested I don't even really know I don't know if he's even said it's just kind of whispers out there like yeah, I'm sure he could go to USC and, and you know, start – like I don't know how good of a recruiter is, but he's a young guy. I imagine he would do well and the whole NIL thing. USC is just kind of a sleeping giant at this point. But as soon as he has any sort of success, the NFL is going to come knocking and try to try to get him. So it's really interesting. I feel like James Franklin definitely seems like a guy, you know, who could be a candidate. But also he's got a good thing going to Penn State too. So it, it's just – we're not gonna. Ha- we're just gonna be dealing with this for so long, just months and months of speculation on who's gonna take this USC job. And you know, I guess that's good for them to kind of have their their brand being talked about and who's gonna be the next guy. But it, it almost seems like too much time. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and cross off Eric Bieniemy. He's not going to get another. He's not going to get a head coaching job anytime soon. Um, the con- Why is the, that? So his past, if you just go back and look at the early 90s, his time in Colorado, um, when his name pops up and if he gets serious traction, I, I just I think that's going to go to the forefront and I would be surprised if um, anyone takes the plunge. I think that's the main reason he has not gotten a head coach. That's just my my assessment and my assumption. On it is where strange that he hasn't gotten a, a head coaching job at this point and how much success the Chiefs offense has had, like... I'll just tell people to to look at his history at Colorado in the early '90s, and that's I, I just I think that is that would be my guess. Um, all, mm, something all, scandalous going on? Uh, just people, just do your own research. Just uh, do, look into it, and folks I've talked to behind the scenes, stuff like that. Just uh, go go check it out. Um, but we shall see. I think the best option for me would be either Jack Del Rio would make a lot of sense for them. Current DC of Washington um, history there. I think he is actually a pretty solid NFL head coach. And I think he would actually be a good one uh, for USC. He would fit a lot there. And then number two, maybe one, a one B guy. Mm-hmm. Number one, a one B Bill O'Brien. Like he won a pretty good amount at Houston. I don't think he's long for this Alabama OC job. Um, he won at Penn state that dude. He's, he's good. He's won in a lot of different places, and I think he would actually be pretty solid in Trojan land as well. Those would be my two picks, my top two, if I'm USC. And I've seen Dan Mullen's name thrown around. I don't that like that. Yeah. legitimate. Like, no. I, I, I would be surprised if it's Dan Mullen. Um, Skylar Thompson, out indefinitely for K-State. He got injured over the weekend in their contest, their close contest, but it was brutal watching the images and like reading, reading about this. Like Skylar Thompson is just like the heart and soul of the Wildcats. And man, if he could just stay healthy, they would really have someone with climbing. But the drop-off from Thompson to Will Howard is paramount. And with their big matchup against Nevada and Carson Strong this weekend, it just stinks that we're not getting Thompson versus Strong because I uh, I would have watched this game. And now that is crossed off my list. <laughs> I'm not even sure I can watch this game. I think it's on like ESPN Plus or something. But, mm. um, you're not an ESPN Plus subscriber. You're not throwing him that five bucks a month for, for Peyton and everything. I'm not. But I mean, I, I mean, if I really wanted to watch this game, I I, I could get someone's login and, and watch it. Like I, I can read things on ESPN Plus with other people's logged in. But um, yeah, I, uh, I just... Deuce Vaughn, to be fair, Deuce Vaughn is the heart and soul of Kansas State, but mm. uh, but missing the quarterback, like we'll see. It it um I think they might just still get the win. We'll see. Okay. Uh, Casey Thompson starting over Hudson Card this week, but Sarkeesian has said that both will uh, get some playing time over the weekend. Uh, what do you make of Casey Thompson? and What you've seen thus far, and if it's kind of an overreaction to what Hudson faced against Arkansas in Week One or Week Two, rather. Um, yeah, I think it might be a little over an overreaction, but but saying they're both still going to play that that seems like he he really hasn't completely you know given the reins to Casey Thompson yet. So yeah, I'm interested to see how this plays out. It's not it's not what you want to see. Like we we talked about you know how it kind of felt encouraging. Like K- Casey Thompson, if he was the starter, you didn't really know what to make of it. Maybe he's not like you don't know how good he is because. You know, maybe just no one was good enough to take the job from him. So you were kind of encouraged to see Hudson Card, but for him to give it right back, now you just you're not even really sure what you have. So 
I'm interested to see how it plays out. Yeah. Um, same old, same old Wisconsin, uh, Kentucky rather. Uh, so I thought this was interesting. I wanted to get your perspective on this um, before we get into our, our picks and predictions for week three of the college football season. Matt Green, um, this is from Pat Forty's latest SI column. I thought this was an interesting nugget. At 11.7 yards per attempt, the Wildcats are fifth nationally. Last year, at 5.5 yards per attempt, this is through the air, by the way, they were 122nd. Kentucky has consecutive games of 500 or more yards total offense for the first time since 2016. Your SEC East Dark Horse Wildcats. Are you shaking a little bit, Matt Green, down there in Georgia? Uh, yeah, like I told you, I was definitely a, a wait-and-see uh, person when it came to Kentucky uh, about being, you know, potentially that second-best team in the East this year. But, um, you know, it's just Missouri. Missouri hasn't exactly had, you know, vaunted defenses by any means. But I was very impressed with like, how Kentucky looked last year or last week. And, like, it's important to have that – that capability to stretch the defenses through the air and but they're still they're still Kentucky and their identity is running the ball and they ran all over Missouri so it just makes their offense that much more dangerous so so yeah I mean who they have Chattanooga this week so I think that might 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 go ahead and make it three straight Mm, there you go um we're gonna pause real quick for a message from our sponsors but then picks Matt Green yes sir All right, we are back on the Chase Thomas Podcast, the Thursday edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where Matt Green, fellow University of North Georgia alumni, and I are going to make our picks and predictions for week three. Already week three in the college football season, where Tennessee gets back over 500 with their their affair, their I-40 affair with Tennessee Tech. Um, that's probably I-40, not going to make the list. Worst highway in the country, by the way. I-40? Oh, man. Driving through the mountains. Mm. I remember a few years ago, I was on that, like, 18-wheeler on one side, like, concrete wall on the other. Yes. Like, it's just, like, it's a dangerous highway to drive on. You're talking about the Gatlinburg area, where you're going around the mountain and everything on the way to North Carolina? Yeah, that's where we were going. We were going to Gatlinburg at that time. Yes. No, that's a terrifying, terrifying uh, experience. I've done it multiple times now. Um it's it's a wild thing and i think there's actually a, a sign that says no 18 wheelers or like be careful i don't know there's something weird where it's like they, just, they have like stay to the right or yes and like it's that. just they break those rules and there's some logging stuff and you're like oh is this it you, you, there's a lot of final destination vibes going around that area <laughs> but it's very pretty we should mention it is a very scenic very pretty pretty sight um first up matt green 330 cbs cbs is back Nestler and Danielson. We, we want to want to recap. Uh, oh, standings do, so uh, far. Yeah, I guess uh, if we must. Let's recap these standings so far. So mm-hmm. uh, so far on the year, I'm 16 and seven overall, 11 and 11 and one against the spread, and you are 10 and 13 overall and nine 13 and one against the spread. So um, we'll see if week three can uh, can bring you some more success. See if you can, can cut that gap. But uh, but like you said. Our week, game of the week this week, 3.30 CBS, Alabama at Florida. Florida is a 15.5-point dog at home. What are your thoughts on this one? Whew. Okay. Um, go ahead and lock in Florida to cover. 
Can we go ahead and lock that in? I'll lock it in. I don't think Florida's winning this game, but I do think Florida is going to keep this game close. Mainly because we've seen this story before with Alabama quarterbacks, or I guess um, quarterbacks who have success against Alabama, the most kind of success, the Matt Corals of the world, the John Reese Plumleys, the the movement guys, the the just the guys who Saban has just a difficult time containing um, is generally speaking who he struggles against Trevor Lawrence, Deshaun Watson, like guys who can get outside of the pocket and do stuff. He doesn't struggle with Ian Book. He doesn't struggle with, oh, I don't know, Jake Fromm. He, he generally speaking. Jake Fromm <laughs> balled on Alabama in 2018. All right. <laughs> you take, you bite your tongue. Jarrett Garantano, like uh, he's there's certain guys that he's not uh, not all that enthralled. I mean, Cam Newton is another obvious example of this. Um, but what I'm saying is like Anthony Richardson's probably not going to start in this game. It's still going to be Emory Jones. They're still going to give Emory Jones opportunities. But Anthony Richardson is going to have at least one big touchdown run. He is going to go off where Alabama is just not going to be prepared for him to come in at certain spots. And he's going to blow this defense wide open. Um, I, I think the strength of this Alabama team is their secondary and their depth there. I, I like what I've seen thus far, but they haven't been tested really. And I think this is going to be a high scoring game. And I think Florida is going to put up more points than people might expect them to, um, give me Bama to win, but Florida to cover. And I would not be surprised if Anthony Richardson just like has this job out right after this week. I will, yeah, for one, I 100% believe Anthony Richardson is going to be the guy moving forward after this week. Mullen has said that they're going to play two quarterbacks in this game. I hear you with Trevor Lawrence and Deshaun Watson and Cam Newton and even Johnny Manziel. I'm just not sure how that pertains to Florida's roster. Like, Florida doesn't have any of those guys on this team. Like, I feel like all of those guys are much closer to an Ian Book of a guy who can run, but... They're not, I don't think, legitimate enough dual threats to have Alabama have to respect the passing game. So I one thing I've, I wanted to point out is Florida's faced the eventual national champion each of the last two years. They lost to LSU by 14, which you know was respectable, especially in Death Valley and the way LSU was murdering everyone they played. And then they lost to Alabama by six uh, in the SEC championship last year. So I feel like I like Florida's ability to keep this game close because I feel like Dan Mullen, I feel like that's kind of what he's done well in these games is keep them close. Have these 12, 14 play, seven, eight minute drives, keep the other offense off the field. Like that's what you saw in Death Valley a couple years ago. And really just one turnover is kind of, you know, what broke serve and what allowed LSU to win that game by two touchdowns. So this feels like a 24-17 type game going into the fourth quarter to me. But then I think Alabama's going to pull away like something like 38-17. So I think Alabama is going to – I think Florida is going to keep it close. But I think I still like Alabama to win by more than 15 and a half at the end of the day. Okay. All right. Cincinnati, Indiana. Is that next in the docket? That is. That's our noon ESPN game. So Indiana, I just – you know, I was not one of the believers in Indiana in 2020. And, you know, seeing them come out against Iowa, I think Cincinnati is very comparable to, to Iowa, to that level that they're going to see. Indiana is a three-point dog at home. Mm. And, um, you know, with Desmond Ritter, uh, you know, he's just a dangerous player. He's, he's 
he's I mean they haven't played anyone so far this year but he's he's passing much better so far in, in 2021 but we know what his ability and how dynamic he is as a runner and to go with the Cincinnati defense I like Cincinnati to to go on the road and, and win this game like pretty easily at least by a touchdown or two I agree uh go ahead and lock this one up this is like one of those where Cincinnati is still like this might be I think this the score might surprise some people because I would guess that Fickle is going to run up the score a little bit more than people might might expect because this is the kind of win against a Big Ten team that they need to to drub. They need to drub the Hoosiers uh, to to make their resume stand out a little bit more for the committee. So if you're Cincinnati and the Bearcats, you've had this one circled as like, mm, we need to make sure that uh, we make it very painful and very brutal against the Hoosiers. So give me Cincinnati to win and cover. All right. And uh, moving on, we got FS1. So that's not Fox. Yeah, so that's not the big noon or anything. Mm-hmm. So FS1, we got Virginia Tech on the road at West Virginia. West Virginia is a two-and-a-half-point uh, favorite at home. West Virginia went 5-0 and at home last season. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem to just be a different team at, uh, versus, at home versus on the road. Virginia Tech had the big win um, to start the season versus North Carolina, but that was also at home, Lane Stadium, rowdy Thursday night and Friday night environment. I just don't see I don't see Virginia Tech. I'm still not that impressed by them. I, I feel like uh, I don't know if their style necessarily travels that well. And there's just something about that home environment at West Virginia. I like them to, to get it done. I I agree. Give me the Mountaineers to win and cover. I think people have over cop or over overbought into the Hokies after that win against uh the against North Carolina. I just I'm not a Braxton Burmeister guy. I don't know where you are. Like he cannot exactly. uh, move the ball downfield and it's not like I'm the biggest Jarrett Dogie guy in in the world, but I do believe in this West Virginia defense and I like you said at home they're a different animal. Um, I think both offenses are going to, to struggle a lot here, but, um, give me a close one Mountaineers win. uh, this is going to be ugly. I, how many picks slash fumbles happen in this game? I'm going to say five. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Um, and then moving forward, we got Minnesota on the road at Colorado in Boulder for once, like, mm-hmm. They decide to actually play at their college campus instead of in in Mile High Stadium. But big two was, weeks in a row for Boulder, right? You get A and M at home, and now you get Minnesota at home. Yeah, exactly. And and A and M, I think you know, you know, week in week out, it's hard to it's hard to really you know compare common opponents and that sort of thing. But I just feel like A and M is a better team than than Minnesota. So if Colorado is going to keep it close with A and M like they did, granted, you know, it was with after Haynes King got hurt and. Texas A&M didn't look impressive in that game. Minnesota minus Mo Ibrahim. I just don't think they're nearly as dangerous. I know the uh, the backup running back had a big had a big game last week uh, against whatever cupcake Minnesota played. But um, just as a one point favorite, it's essentially a pick 'em. I'm I like Colorado to get it done. I don't like anything about Colorado's offense. That's one of the worst. I, I don't know if you watched any of A&M Colorado last Saturday, but not only was like Haynes King being out and we should have mentioned at the top of the show that Haynes King looks like he's out for a while. And we got Zach Kel. How do we pronounce his last name? Calzada. Calzada, I guess. Um, looks near high school. Gwinnett County. What did he go to Lanier? 
Yeah, he did. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, well, he stinks. And <laughs> it's going to be rough, tough sledding for for the the Aggies. Like, I, Kane looked good, and he is... Ooh, the offense does not move the same way uh, with King as it does with Calzada. But maybe that'll change with a full week of practice with the ones. Who knows? Um, but Colorado lost JT Shrout, former um, Tennessee volunteer backup. Um, he was the guy all year. They know were, good. And it's just bad. Like this Colorado offense is, is not good. And their defense is legit with Carl Durrell calling this stuff. But um, give me give me the Gophers to win and cover. But like, man, I, I don't know about Minnesota's offense either. Tanner Morgan's not been good through two weeks. And now losing Muhammad Ibrahim for the year. Ooh, I don't know, uh, but I still think there's still just too much talent there. Um, give me Minnesota to win and cover. Yeah, I'm very, very lukewarm on Colorado, but I just I big buffs guy that, Matt Green. I fear I figured A and M is better than Minnesota, so if they can if they can hang with Colorado or with A and M, they can beat Minnesota. We'll see. We'll see how that logic uh, pans out. Mm-hmm. And then um, one game we alluded to earlier, we got Nevada going on the road. Two and a half point favorite in the Little Apple versus the Kansas State Wildcats. Like we said, Skylar Thompson is going to be out for, you know, indefinitely, it looks like. And I just, I'm, I'm not sure how, like, they did, obviously he was there when, when the big blowout went over Stanford, but I'm not sure how you get, make Nevada the favorite in this game. Like, I, Deuce Vaughn is still there and he's still the most dynamic player on this team, one of the most dynamic players in the Big 12, in college football, for that matter. And I think that's going to be enough. You know, just lean on him, whether it's throwing it to him, just hand it, hand it off. I think that's enough for Kansas State to win this game by, by – by, well, they're the, they're the underdog. So I, I like them to win this game outright. So give me Kansas State. Lock in. my Just go ahead and lock it in. Carson Strong in Nevada and the fighting Jay Norvell's winning here to win and cover wolfpack are good mm. um the k-state i would have picked if skylar thompson did get not did not get knocked out for this game but i don't know if you've watched any carson strong this man can push the ball down the field and he is a good good group of five quarterback he is this year's zach wilson and i uh i don't know i don't think k-state's gonna be able to score enough i am not a will howard guy at all i'm a big deuce Vaughn guy we love us some uh some uh why am I forgetting on Sproles' first name? Darren Sproles? Yes, Darren Sproles. Mm. Um, we love we love that kind of stuff in Manhattan, Kansas, the Little Apple. But I still am a believer in the Nevada Wolfpack. Man, Jay Norvell. Also, why not give him a look if you're USC? Dude's doing it at Nevada? I don't know. I like Jay Norvell. Oklahoma ties? Give me, give me the Wolfpack. USC just thinks they're so... like that's. I wonder what USC is going to do because I feel like they're... They seem like they'll turn their nose up at so many of these yeah. you know, group of five type candidates. But um, all right, we got another disagreement. So then moving on, 2.30 on NBC, we got Purdue at Notre Dame. Notre Dame is a seven-point favorite. They've, they've won each of their first games by three, first two games by three points, including an almost getting upset last week. Um, but in this in this series, they've won seven straight over Purdue. Little uh, little Indiana low key rivalry there. Last time in uh, Purdue won was 2007 when Curtis Painter was the uh, was the quarterback in West Lafayette. So 
I'm just not impressed by Purdue at all. Like Notre Dame hasn't looked great either. I think we both kind of thought they were going to take a little bit of a step back this year. But um, I still think they're good enough to beat Purdue by more than a touchdown. So give me the fighting Irish. Are you ready for this? Mm-mm. Give me the Boilermakers! The Boilermakers. This Let's has do. all the makings of a trap game. Notre Dame should have lost to Toledo last week. Jack Cohn, not looking good. They struggled with, we now know, a terrible Florida State team that lost at home to Jacksonville State. That escaping looks even worse now. They've escaped Florida State. They've escaped Toledo. Guess who they're not escaping this week? A very good offense with Plummer and company. I I think the Boilermakers are going to win this game. I don't think I don't think uh, Notre Dame's going to be up for it. I think this is Purdue Super Bowl this year. Give me the Boilermakers. I think they win this. Mm, all right, we got uh, another one. So some nice some nice disagreements so far here on the pod. Um, another another low key rivalry, I guess you could say. Teams out of conference that uh, that tend to play each other. Um, we got Mississippi State going on the road at Memphis. Mississippi State has won 12 straight over Memphis, including the last six that have been played at Memphis. Last win Memphis has over Mississippi State, you got to go back to 1993. So I was I was impressed by Mississippi State last week. Like NC State's a quality opponent. Like I know they got to go, you know, on the road, but I mean. No disrespect to the Tigers, but I don't. I don't think that's the most hostile environment. Yeah, was that like a forty thousand, fifty thousand seat stadium? Like, it's a good question. I don't know. Mississippi, Mississippi State is a. They've they've played in plenty of environments like this. I, mm-hmm. I saw a tweet earlier this week of no no artificial sound makers in the in the stadium, but I'm mm-hmm. sure I'm sure some people will sneak in their cowbells. But I think they're uh, gonna like travel well because Mississippi and West, uh, like. Mississippi and Memphis are not far from each other. I see. Yeah, I know Ole Miss is super close to Memphis, but so I think Mississippi State's a little bit further away. Only two hours and forty-five minutes. Okay, it's not bad. This is the Liberty Bowl, right? In Mm -hmm. the same stadium. Yes. I um I like Mississippi State in this one. I do too. But what was the number? Oh, uh, three. Mississippi State is a three-point favorite. I. I mean, Memphis is better than people think. Um, Memphis, is, their offense looks right. I think Ryden Silverfield's a really good coach, and he's going to be there for a while. Um, is this not the most typical Mike Leach? Like, he's making all of us happy. He's just looking like, oh, Mississippi State, the Egg Bowl is going to be delightful. This is all working. The defense is humming. The offense makes sense. And then they just drop an egg to... Uh, to the Tigers on the road where they just don't come to play for this one. They just don't do it. They, they bury NC state and then they follow that up with a rough loss to the Tigers. Um, I don't think that happens here, but I do think we're, we're about due for a Mike Leach stink bomb um, on this calendar. So I don't know when it's coming. It might be this week, but I'm not going to do it until it happens. So give me, give me the Bulldogs here to win and cover. All right, yeah, and, and this could be this could have the makings of a trap game. You got LSU next week, so that, that could be circled. But uh, I think going on the road, I think makes it less of a trap game. I think you mm. kind of you're a little more focused when you got to go on the road business trip. Mm-hmm. But uh, by the way, and there's also sixty one thousand is the capacity of the Liberty Bulls. So. Well, we need to know for the future Big Twelve 
uh, member. Memphis yeah, maybe Tigers. maybe being in the Big Twelve, they can uh, they can get a few more thousand, expand that thing a little bit. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And then um, the second best matchup of the week, I think most people would would uh, would agree. We got Auburn going on the road at Penn State. Penn State is a six and a half point favorite. White out. What are your thoughts about this game? Seven thirty ABC. I am so excited for this game. I'm so glad we're getting this in the regular season. I am. I'm very intrigued by this. Both teams are basically in the same spot, essentially, in their conferences where it's like they're, they've won every game they're supposed to at this point. They have coaches we both like and experience winning at other schools. Franklin at Vanderbilt, very impressive. What Brian Harson did at Boise, very impressive. Um, I don't know. I think this is going to be super fascinating because I think Bo Nix has been better than Sean Clifford. I'm not a Sean Clifford guy. I'm a Dean King guy. But like... Um, Dion Kane, excuse me. And I think Dean Kane was Superman, I seem to recall. Uh, not that one, but... Um, the worst I like... Superman ever, also. <laughs> and uh, I like what Penn State's defense looks like. Their defense is legit. Like, that is the one... Like, Brent Pry has got this defense cooking. They are going to throw a bunch at Bo Nix. I am worried about the Tigers' receivers. Like, I haven't seen a whole lot from them to this point big tank bigsby guy but is bigsby gonna be able to run but then you're like well wisconsin was able to run all over penn state the problem was they they fumbled and graham mertz could not do anything downfield um so i think this is going to be extremely close but i do think penn state is the better program the program i trust more right now give me penn state to win and cover so Auburn has dropped 60 points in each of their first two games, mm-hmm. which is sounds amazing. Do you want to guess the strength of schedule that Auburn has faced so far through the first two games of the season? And there's 130 teams in FBS, mind you. Would you like to guess where Auburn's strength of schedule ranks? 122. 130. Ooh. The weakest schedule in all of FBS through two games it's going to get a lot harder, too. But um, I just think – I'm not really sure how they got into the top 25. Like, if, if you didn't think they were a top 25 team to begin with, like, what does scoring 60 versus Alabama State and, and Akron really prove? So, Bo Nix, so far on at home for his career, he has 20 touchdowns and one interception. On the road, he's thrown nine touchdowns and ten interceptions. This Penn State atmosphere is going to be absolutely rowdy. I was tempted to, to take Auburn uh, in the points, like to keep it close, but but I'm with you. I'm going to go Penn State wins and Penn State covers. Mm. I would agree. I would agree. Um, where are we going next? Next, we're going 9 o'clock, FS1. Oklahoma State goes on the road Onto the Smurf turf at Boise State. <laughs> Boise is a four-point favorite at home. They uh, they blew out Oklahoma State a couple years ago uh, in Stillwater. And just so far through the first two weeks, like I just have not been impressed by Oklahoma State. Hank Bachmeyer and Boise State's offenses look pretty good. Like I think Central Florida, you know, that, that was a that was a tough a tough win or a tough game. So they did lose that one, but I just think Boise state's the better team than Oklahoma state. And I think at home, it's going to show, like I could see them winning this game by their four point favorite. I could see them winning by like multiple touchdowns. Okay. 
Um, I think Boise wins big. I think this is. I think Oklahoma State's got some real offensive problems. It just something's not right there, and it has been right for a while now. Um, I think Bachmeyer goes off. Give me, give me the Broncos at home. Protect this turf. Is that what they call it? Smurf turf, by the way. Did you make that up, or is that what it's called? No, I didn't make it up. I don't know if they officially call it that, but it's been called that before. Okay, I don't, I don't mind that. Um, give me, give me the Broncos at home. Okay, um, and then we go on staying out in the Pac-12 for BYU's Pac-12 tour, third straight game uh, versus a Pac-12 opponent. Arizona State comes to town, and BYU is a two point five or two and a half point underdog at home. Lock this in, home dog of the week. I think Utah's a better team than Arizona State. Personally, BYU. Yeah, they, yeah, I think Utah's a better team than Arizona State. Oh, I get what you're saying. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and they were able to to beat the Utes last week. So, give me BYU, home dog of the week. Okay. We're gonna disagree, and it it pains mm. me. It pains me. Macri. Going against your Cougs. It it pains me. You know how I feel about my Cougs. Shout out to the Cougs. Love. Love BYU. Love the Cougs. Big BYU guy over here. Backed you for years on this podcast. Run the tapes. However, Arizona State's good. And I think they're better than what Utah is to this point. Guess what uh, Jaden Daniels is not? Yeah, that's one of the Jaden Daniels is not Charlie Burr. And I I think this is, I think Arizona State's more of a complete team than Utah. Utah's still got problems on that offensive side of the ball. I think BYU is going to struggle to score enough to keep up with with the sun devils here i think the sun devils have real real chance of winning the pac-12 this year um they're the dark horse outside of oregon um and ucla but they're in that top three depending on the week of and what games are happening but i'm still very high on herm and especially antonio pierce with this defense i think jaron hall still got some weight some work to do through the air I think Jane Daniels, uh, he might have his Heisman moment here. Like he gets in the conversation by going off against against the Cougs. I'll be watching this on Sunday morning, but I'm I'm excited to see how it unfolds. But give me give me Arizona State here. All right, lock it in. And then the last one on our slate, Fresno State goes on the road at UCLA. UCLA is a ten point favorite at home. And I just think this is going to be a statement win for UCLA. I think they're just like, I think they're going to like, not necessarily that you're going to learn that much from Fresno state. Like they obviously did. Fresno's good though. Yeah. They're a quality team. They kept it close versus Oregon, but um, I think we're going to come out of this game just kind of thinking UCLA is the clear best team in the pac 12. Like I think they've looked Ooh, good so far. over Oregon. Yeah. I mean, Oregon, obviously the win over Ohio state is a huge win, but I just think UCLA, like they're they're not going to be able to slow down this running game, and then you know, uh, Dorian Thompson Robinson, like I just think they're they're they just seem to be a flawless offense to this point, and so you know maybe they're not the best team in the Pac-12, maybe they don't prove that this week, but I think they're significantly better than Fresno State, and I think they're going to get it done. Ten forty-five. Uh, start so I'm not, I'm not I can't promise I'm going to make it up to keep watching this one, but I'm, I know you will be. Uh, no, I will not because I, I will not. I, it's just too much because I've got Bama, Florida, and then I've got Penn State, Auburn, and then I'm, I'll be at Tennessee. No, I'll be I'll be calling it an evening at that point that I'm going to watch. Yeah. We need to watch the late in the morning. I got to save it for Sunday morning. And it was between Fresno and uh, UCLA versus BYU 
and um, Arizona State, and I'm BYU is getting my attention on Sunday morning. So before our pod, so that's that's how that will go. Um, no, give me give me the Bruins to win and cover, but I would actually no. You know what I'm gonna do? Give me the Bruins to win. Give me Fresno to cover. I think Fresno's good, mm. and that coach is gonna get plucked sooner rather than later. Okay, lock it in. Who's your home dog of the week? Who are we going to get with Zeus? Uh, on, we got on... BYU. The Cougs okay. are the home dog of the week. Man, taking my Cougs for me. I Zeus like is undefeated him. this year. He is. So you really want to go with the Cougs? Houston one. Mm-hmm. That Houston one. It's like that. That wasn't. That wasn't Zeus's. Pick, no, we don't so have any picture evidence was... of that. Exactly. So you know, if you if you took that Mississippi State uh, home dog to the bank last week, Zeus uh, Zeus won you some money. So. Mm. So take it, take it to the bank. There you go. All right, Matt Green. Well, that is all of our picks for the week. Don't forget, you can uh, you can check us out at chasethomaspodcast.com. Uh, you can get this podcast wherever you get your podcast: Apple, Spotify, Podbean, wherever. But if you are an Apple Podcast listener, it would help us grow the show if you would leave us a five star rating interview. Tell your friends about this program that we do twice a week. The show comes out with new episodes every day, but Matt and I do this college football themed edition every every uh, every Thursday and every Sunday. Um, so look out for that on your your podcast feed of choice. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to SportsRenaissanceMan.substack.com where you can access all of my writing every single day along you can also email us email us with any questions concerns any thoughts for for matt and his hatred for the south carolina gamecocks at chase thomas podcast at gmail.com follow matt again at matt underscore w underscore green follow myself at chase double underscore thomas all right matt that is all i've got my friend carolina that's not even really a rivalry (laughs) like it's a rivalry for south carolina i'm not watching a second of that game players from georgia but like they got so down like it seems like every every matchup Georgia has is a, is a quote unquote rivalry, mm. but like that's so far down the list at this point. Like Steve Spurrier made that a rivalry. Like as soon as he left, the rivalry essentially ended. Like, but you're nervous about Jordan Yates. You were texting me like I don't know. Text a different animal with Jordan Yates under center. Yeah. <laughs> same same thing for for Georgia Tech. Like they just they just keep going further and further down. They might as well be Georgia Southern at this point. Like oh, it's only a rivalry. It's only a rivalry when Georgia Tech wins, and then you're kind of reminded about how much you hate them. But it's like when, you know, every time Georgia's an actual good team, like, they they take care of Georgia Tech. Like, that's when they, they win big. So it, it's really just the, the down years for Georgia whenever you would see them trip up and lose to Tech. So I'm not, I'm not too worried about Georgia Tech or South Carolina at this point. Okay. Um, Matt? You have yourself a great weekend. I'm taking the weekend off from high school football. The the sports renaissance woman and I are going to the Tennessee Fair on Friday night instead. Oh, all right. It's a bye week for high school football for us. We're we're taking a bye week. I'm a big what, fair uh, guy. Are what, you a fair guy? What's your Um yeah, I've been to I went to the coming fair one year. Mm. It was uh it was solid. But um I don't know. It it depends on like like what kind of rides. Like I'm one of those people that kind of kind of worry about the rides at a fair like it's just like this thing's like at six swags it's like i trust this thing like this is a quality construction like 
some temporary spinning wheel that's going on. Like, I just don't know. You know, I'd, I'd, I'll, I'll ride a Ferris wheel, but like some sort of like actual, if it looks like kind of intense at a fair, like you're kind of worried about the, the, the structural soundness of it. I, I, I don't blame you on any of that. I'm just there for uh, the funnel kicks. Mm, I think funnel cakes are so overrated. Okay, that's a terrible take. Tori's a big funnel cake person. See, I've it's always just, preferred like, Tori on this podcast. Like, I like, like, I, I'm, a, and I'm not like turning my nose up at just sugar. That's what know? it sounds like, like to me. Cotton candy is just straight up sugar. Like, oh, but cotton I'll, candy is trash. I'll get on some cotton candy, but just wait, hold on. To be clear, oh. you are pro cotton candy and anti funnel cake. I guess it was just I went. I was so like I was in my twenties before I ever tried funnel cake. How does that so, even yeah. happen? I don't know. I had a deprived childhood. But um, clearly, we just hyped up funnel cake so much, and it's just kind of like, what is this? Just not worth the hype. I don't know. I don't get it. But yeah, I'm not turning my nose up at sugar, like cotton candy. That's fine. But um, I also don't like cotton candy as much as I once did. But uh, I don't know. Funnel cake just doesn't do it for me. Hmm. The more you know, the more you know, Matt Green. Well, you have a great weekend. Enjoy the the tailgate experience of the Tequila Falcons on Friday. Um, make sure that that place is rocking. Falcon Field, Tequila Field, whatever they call it, in, in Golden Blue Nation. What What is the field called? Um, I honestly don't know. Mm. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. Well, you still only, like, we're already halfway through the season almost, Matt Green. You got to make sure you get, you get Tori that, uh, that experience. She's She's chomping at the bit. That's true. We'll uh, we'll get to a game. Mm, okay, Matt Green. I will talk to you in a couple days. Yes, sir. All right. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I am now joined, my good friend. John Taylor of Fangraphs.com, as I am every single week at this time. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Pretty good. How about yourself? There's another pause. I thought you were going to do it again. I thought you were going to mute your mic again as we got started here. That just We're going to keep doing that until <laughs> the whole episode is going to be you introing and me just refusing to respond. Uh, That's how this works. A classic bit. That's a Norm MacDonald bit, if there ever was one. Seriously. I wrote about him today. I had forgotten, like, um, this will be in the newsletter today, that you can go check out at sportsrenaissancemand.substack.com. Um, I forgot I saw him live in uh, in L.A. six years ago now, five. Oh, wow. Yeah, cool. it, was, it was him, Dana Carvey, David Spade, and Bill Bird did a surprise set. And uh, wow. it was jam-packed. It was it was. One of my favorite favorite nights uh, in a long time. It was it was so much fun, and um, he was so good. He like <laughs> he probably didn't do the best of any of the four. Like it's weird that David Spade was the headliner that night, but I guess yeah, that makes no sense. <laughs> I guess just because no of offense. notoriety. Actually, I guess you know what? I, I I say no offense to David Spade. Offense to David Spade. That makes no sense. He. Uh, He's funny. I mean, David Spade's just, he's fine, but he's just of that group. He's definitely the weak link of that four. But Bill Burr actually wasn't even on the on the list. Like, I went for Norm. I remember pushing for my cousin to go with me because he's the one in L.A. and I was going to visit the family and stuff. But, like, 
I wanted to go see him at the comedy store. I don't think they'd ever been. And I was just like, I, I want to go. I want to go to the comedy stores. I want to see this. And uh, yeah, we went. Um, it was it was so much fun. But Norm is just a very different kind of comedian. And I just, I always appreciated it. This night also had a heckler in the front row get mad at Bill Burr and then go to battle, which I mean, it, I'm always amazed at hecklers. But to see it in real time, to see them try and... <laughs> muster their way into the bit and also of all the comedians like bottom three choice to to say something to while they're on stage is bill burr would be yeah my recommendation is to stay away from that one i mean there are there are no comedians i feel like it's a good idea in particular to mm-hmm. to target with your heckling because virtually all of them are experts in destroying you in that but yeah bill burr is as bad as bad of an option as you can pick that dude doesn't give the tiniest of a crap no. And will kill you. And that's what happened. It was a solid seven minutes of evisceration. This person got up and left crying. Like, that That happened. Yeah, and that's what... Honestly, which is like... Th- that's what you deserve. Right. Uh, not to not to get too far afield from our usual Well, no, this stuff. usually like, leads us right into Major League Baseball talk, John Taylor. It does. But, yeah, if you go to a performance of any kind and you spend your time heckling, go to hell, man. That's it's not just rude. You deserve to be embarrassed in front of other people if you do that. I also love the Todd Berry bit. Um, Todd Berry is like my favorite under like talked about like Barry and um, Norm were like the two comedians over the years that I've like always been in on that. I could never like find someone else in the South that was like in on Norm and Todd Berry. Be like, Hey, did you see that set? See that spicy honey uh, Netflix special from Todd Berry? Don't really have anybody to talk about it with, but it, it's great, and he had a whole thing about, like, hecklers, but a different kind, where it's not even really heckling, it's more just disrespectful, where they were, like, on their iPad in the front row, and yeah. just, like, I for, like I don't want to butcher the bit, but he has a really good thing, and just, like, um, the person's like, oh, you're you, and they're like, yeah, like, he's like, I, I see you, you're right here, Out, and they're like, what do you, and he, they're basically Googling Todd Berry while Todd Berry's doing a set on their iPad, and he's like, oh, I should go see you sometime, it's, it's a whole thing. Um, this is why I'm not a comedian. This is why I'm a podcaster. John Taylor is because of my, I, my great I, I, timing. There is no difference between those two. <laughs> um, are you ready for today in baseball national pastime? Yes. All right. Where do you think we're going? Where do you think you're going? Uh, 1938. Very close. Very weirdly close. 1946, John. Not bad. In Brooklyn. A giant swarm of gnats engulfs Ebbets Field at the end of the fifth inning during the second game of a doubleheader due to the bothersome insects and impending darkness. The umpire call nightcap, resulting in a 2-0 Dodger victory over the Cubs. So... (laughs) So the thing with Jabba Chamberlain in Cleveland was not the first time that's actually happened. No, this one actually Where got Bugs canceled. Essentially decided a game. It literally decided a game. Is that not is that not great? That is this stupid sport has so many stupid things about it and that's just that's high up there right there. What a stupid sport. Just uh one of the one of the dumber ones, I would yeah, say. Yeah, it, it's truly a dumb sport. Like like it, it really is one of the dumbest ones by far. And, that, and that's what I love about it, but you, you do have to take, you do have to accept that to a certain point. It's like baseball is really stupid, and really stupid things happen in baseball all the time, and that is certainly no exception, right there. 
Do you know what today is also for your beloved Red Sox? Uh, the first day of the rest of their lives. That is true. That is true. And that's what people are saying with Martin Perez being back in the fold. Um, no, John. In 2017, what happened on this date in 2017? Uh, internet. That's true. Internet's a thing. It did involve the internet. Uh, that was my only guess. Okay. Major League Baseball completes its investigation into allegations made by Yankees that the Red Sox used an Apple Watch to steal signs during a three-game series in August. Commissioner Rob Manfred fines Boston an undisclosed amount for violating league regulations by sending electronic communications from their video replay room to a trainer in the dugout. Well, the good news for MLB is that was the last time there would be any signs stealing <laughs> shenanigans or allegations in baseball, and that that investigation and subsequent fine solved the entire issue going forward for everyone. It did. It did. Nothing Nothing of the sort. There, can you imagine if there was a book about an entire cheating scandal after this was yeah, in the bud? Yeah, wild thing that would be. I think what's, what MLB should really be feeling lucky about, though, is that Boston's for, that this cheating scandal didn't extend to include a a team that won a World Series. Can you imagine how bad that would have been? Ooh. If a team that had won the World Series that year mm. had been cheating? God, what a scandal. What a scandal indeed. Uh, don't forget, folks, you can go read all the good folks and uh, all that at Fangraphs.com today. So if you've not already subscribed to become a member of Fangraphs.com, go ahead and do that today. It would be great. It's a great baseball website that does great work go subscribe to sports renaissance man.substack.com just type in your email and you'll be good to go there um if you like listening to john and i guess what we do it every week and you can leave us a five-star rating and review on apple Podcasts. go to chase today for all access to all my previous episodes um john yes the giants yes. they clinched a playoff berth good for them <laughs> That's all I have to say. On the that. Dodgers also <laughs> clinched a playoff berth. They're nearing 10 straight playoff berths in LA. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that, that part isn't surprising at least. I think, I mean, obviously the one thing left to see now is who's going to win that division. But uh, yeah, Los Angeles making the playoffs, not surprising. I think everyone, I think, virtu- I think everyone who didn't predict them to win the West at least picked them to be a wild card. And I think everyone who picked someone else to win the West probably went with San Diego. And that's very clearly not going to happen. But, yeah, it's, it's an amazing accomplishment for San Francisco to do this so quickly. Not, not just so quickly after uh, the little mini teardown that Farhan Zaidi did upon taking over, but so dominantly. This isn't a team that squeaked into a playoff spot uh, on the last day and is coming into the – it's going to go into October looking like a, you know, a pseudo contender. This is the best team in baseball by wins and lo- by wins, and I believe by, by winning percentage too. They're, they're ahead in the division. Uh, they are going to be, if they do that, the number one seed in the National League. And, well, I guess it doesn't really matter in the majors overall, but they're going to have home field advantage throughout the throughout the, the NL playoffs if they, you know, depending on how far they go. And it, like I think we've talked about before, it all has been legitimate, or if not legitimate, at least realistic and something that you can feel confident in saying, yeah, this is just a good team. And I, I feel kind of not necessarily bad for the I don't I don't feel bad for the Giants, but I do feel kind of bad for Giants fans in that sense that they've you know they'd be the first to say yeah this team is legitimate we've been watching them all year this is not a fluke this is a bunch of guys performing well in some cases way better than expected but still performing well 
and not necessarily in a way that suggests this is all going to hell anytime soon. I mean, they're the Giants are overperforming their Pythagorean record, but only by three wins. You know, this is this is not some hugely fluky thing. And I guess the question, well, I guess obviously the question now for San Francisco now that uh, the postseason is a is a is a guarantee. I mean, beyond of course, you know, winning the division, which they only have so much control over, especially given that they have no more head-to-head games left with the Dodgers, is what looks good and what looks like it needs help going into the postseason. And to be quite honest with you, aside from rotation depth, which I think might be a minor issue right now because of Johnny Cueto and Alex Wood both being injured and there not really being a whole lot behind them at that time, I don't know that there's really terribly much for the Giants to be worried about. They've got a very solid offense. Chris Bryant has produced very well since coming over to them. The the outfield has kind of solidified around Steven Duger and Mike Yastrzemski and kind of the rotating cast of guys who get used. The bench has been very strong, particularly Lamonte Wade Jr. and Darren Ruff. Uh, I think the biggest issue for the Giants is can we just make it through the next two-plus weeks with everyone staying healthy? And unfortunately, on the one hand, unfortunately for them, they have to keep pushing because the division is so much... I mean, you obviously want the division as opposed to the, the wild card game, although the second wild card is going to be, a by all by every measure, a weaker team, although that doesn't matter in a short series. And, yeah, so that, that's got to be the big thing for San Francisco. Can you keep everyone healthy, particularly older guys? And I imagine that's going to be involve a fair amount of time off down the stretch now for them, or as much as they can manage. But... Otherwise, you look at San Francisco, and I don't know if necessarily know if this is the strongest team or the best team going into the postseason, but I don't think this is a team that, you know, I mean, certainly anyone can lose in any round, but this 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 definitely does feel like, next to the Dodgers, the favorite for the pennant in the National League, I think, because you look at this roster and you look at the way they're playing right now, there are not really a whole lot of weaknesses here, and... You know, I, I think, like I said, I think that the weak, the if you want to, if you do want to poke some holes, I do think there's a question of if your rotation is Logan Webb, Kevin Gaussman, and for now Anthony DiSclefani, one, two, three in the postseason. How comfortable do you feel with that? Webb has been great. Gaussman has obviously was great to start the season. Hit a rough patch. Seems to have been, seems to have pulled himself at least mostly back out of it. DiSclefani is fine for what he is. You don't really have that established number one guy the way that the Dodgers obviously do with your choice of Max Scherzer or Clayton Kershaw, which is kind of ridiculous to think about, or the way the Padres would with well, the ideal you Darvish, or the way New York would with Garrett Cole, and on and on and on. They have guys who perform that way, but they don't have guys you necessarily think to yourself, yeah, they're going to pitch that way going forward. But that's a pretty minor nitpick in terms of, you know, and that's a nitpick that, that lives along those lines of you need proven starters to succeed in the postseason. No, you don't. You just need good pitchers. The Rays proved that last year. As long as you have enough good pitching and you know how to deploy it properly, you're good. And which I guess is the other part of San Francisco's thing is how confident do you feel with Gabe Kapler managing playoff games, given his propensity for strange decisions or at least opaque decisions. But uh, that's obviously something we're going to have to wait and see. But yeah, San Francisco is as legitimate a contender as exists right now. And this is a well-deserved playoff berth for them. And like I said, especially after the miserable season they had two years ago and how quickly they turned it around. It's really impressive. It also just feels like when the Giants are good. They're like the opposite of the Cardinals. With their sorry, not, a, not two years ago, sorry. Uh, twenty From 2017 to 2019, they were a very bad team. But go on, sorry. Yeah, no, the even number of years ended at 2016, right? 
yes, that was their last post. This that was actually their last postseason appearance when they fell to the Cubs in the division series, and on, well, uh, Chicago went on to win the tr- title. I've been back since. Jokes on them, Chris Bryant in San Francisco now. That's what's going to reverse the polarity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, also, just good for Posey and Belt and Crawford and the the long term SF guys. Uh, I just they're they're a fun team. Um, I am curious though. Do you think that there's going to be a managerial disadvantage for Kapler versus the best manager in baseball, perhaps in Craig Council, if that that matchup comes to fruition? Not necessarily. I just see a matchup where you're going to see a lot of bullpen usage. Uh, I think. It, I mean, if that's if it does end up being Giants Brewers. I think Council has an advantage solely in that with Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff, he doesn't presumably feel the need to play matchups or worry about them as early as I imagine Kapler will with Webb and Gaussman and DiSclavani. But ultimately, that's just a matter of when you choose to deploy your relievers. I mean, both of those managers are very, very well versed in in, in both using a, a modern bullpen and especially Council in using a modern bullpen in the postseason. And maybe that's the one the other advantage he has is that Kapler, as manager, has been to the postseason exactly uh, zero times. So, you know, that's going to be new for him in terms of the management. I mean, I have to imagine it's similar to how this is a player. Everything just does kind of go up a notch in terms of the intensity, the pressure, uh, the results. So that'll be interesting to watch. But, I mean, he's gotten them this far, and he's had to do it. Granted, he's had a great team behind him, but he's also had to do it by man- by managing a modern bullpen and managing a modern rotation, and especially the bench management he's done, which has been terrific. So, no, I, I'm actually I'm I'm actually very interested to see how Kapler manages this team throughout the postseason and what he does with it. Speaking of the Brewers, Brewers legend Ryan Braun, who had his entire career go without any hiccups and out without any controversy anything of the sort very normal career for the the long time milwaukee brewer but uh he officially retired what do you make of it yeah and i mean this was something where he wasn't signed after the end of last season the brewers uh chose a buyout option in his contract and really didn't seem like anyone had any interest in him and with good reason he didn't he wasn't able to stay healthy last season. When he was on the field, he produced fine, but certainly not to the level that – oh, not fine. He was a league average at best. Uh, he has been virtually a league average bat. He was a league average bat, I'd say, the last four seasons of his career uh, on top of the inability to stay healthy and on top of the fact that he really is not suited to playing a full-time defensive position anymore. He's not a particularly good outfielder. He never really was. So it's not surprising that this is the end for Braun. Quite honestly, I thought he already had retired. I, I kind of forgot he was still a thing. He just he very much just kind of faded away into nothing. Part of that, I think, is obviously what happened post-MVP award with his, uh, with his failed PED test, the rather embarrassing and controversial way he chose to get out of it by claiming it was all a setup and then claiming that the handler of his sample, which was later thrown out because it was deemed that it had been... I believe out of the chain of custody for too long. I forget what the exact thing was. It was never tampered with. It just wasn't. Uh, it just wasn't handled properly. And then he made the accusations that that handler was an anti-Semite, which was just an appalling thing to do. I think, obviously, in light of that, and then in light of the biogenesis suspension, uh, a couple. Well, of speaking of, can I can I just drop this little landmine in here on this biogenesis stuff? 
Absolutely. Okay, it's baseball writer on baseball writer crime. Um, Buster only tweeted this out earlier. I don't know if you saw this. He said, here's the question that hangs over Ryan Braun and his legacy. If he wasn't snagged in the biogenesis investigation, would he have ever owned up to the personally destructive lies he aimed at the sample collector after he tested positive for PEDs? Um, we all know the answer to this question. However, yeah, Craig Calcaterra yeah, quote yeah. tweeted here, and he said, fair, related. You going to ask A-Rod about that? sort of stuff on sunday or do colleagues not get the same scrutiny oh my goodness ouch jeez flames buster really takes it on the chin (laughs) but yeah i mean that that whole sordid mess and the and the really embarrassing and uh like i said the embarrassing and regrettable way that braun handled it i think pretty much kind of closed the book on him as really any sort of star in baseball I mean, it didn't help that after the 2012 season, which was his uh, the last time he finished anywhere near the top of MVP voting, he hit uh, 278, 341, 493 with a 120 OPS plus from that point forward, which is good. Those are very solid numbers, but compared to what he did before that when he posted a 147 OPS plus from 2007 to 2012, that's obviously a step down. And of course, that doesn't include the, the poor defense that hurt his overall value. I mean, the end result is you get a player who, by wins of overplacement, was worth just a, sh- a tad over 47. Not a Hall of Famer by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, short on both the big round numbers, uh, retires. 48 homers shy of 400, and 47 hits shy of, or sorry, 37 hits shy of uh, 2,000. The 2,000 hit barrier is one of the ones that uh, is very commonly recognized as kind of the kind of first demarcation point of a Hall of Fame career. Virtually no one, I believe almost no one, in the Hall has had under 2,000 career hits in their in their careers. So just on the numbers alone, Braun wasn't going to make it. The PED stuff was going to guarantee that. I imagine when he does show up on a ballot, he'll hang around for... He, I doubt he'll even make the 5% cut. I imagine most writers wrote him off about the same way most fans did a while ago. It really just seems like the only per- the only group of fans left who really had anything, any interest or care in Ryan Braun after that MVP season were Brewers fans because he did spend his entire career in Milwaukee. He was obviously a big part of turning that franchise back into a respectable one, getting postseason uh, in five different seasons, including the last three in a row. Never made it past the pennant series. Uh, unfortunately, lost in 2011 to the Cardinals, lost in 2018 to the Dodgers, me- very memorably in a very, very good, very tightly fought series. Um, worth noting, Braun was a very good postseason hitter. At least he was early on in his career and then kind of petered out. But that's just kind of the story of his career. A great hitter early on who petered out very quickly uh, once he turned 30, with which makes sense with normal aging, someone who couldn't stay healthy. And then to that, you add all the PED stuff. I mean, I'll remember Braun primarily as just a big home run hitter back in his day. But unfortunately, the, the lasting memory I think I have of Braun, and I think a lot of players or a lot of people and fans are going to have a Braun, is that MVP award, is the PED suspensions, and is the way he handled it. And that's, I mean, I've, I've read that he has done a lot in the, in the time since to make amends for that. He has apologized, for example, to the guy, to the to the person who collected his sample for that PED test. He's been a big community service guy post-biogenesis. So I that is admirable that, that Braun has kind of taken the back half of his career to try to make up for the way he acted in the first half. But ultimately, it's just unfortunate for him, I think, and deserved to a certain degree, but also unfortunate that that PED scandal and that tainted MVP award and the way he responded to all of it is probably going to be the lasting image and definition of his career for those of us outside of Wisconsin. Absolutely. Um, Jordan Alvarez, getting 
some first base reps apparently this <clears throat> week. What do you what do you think about him? He hasn't done it since the minors. Do you like this as a option for him? Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, it's just improving the positional versatility of a guy and also helping so that, you know, if you want to give Yuli Gurriel a day off at 37, you can do that. Or if you want to get Alvarez's bat in there while also being able to push Michael Brantley to DH and giving him some time, uh, you can do that as well. The only problem is if you move Alvarez to first base, obviously you're taking Gurriel's bat out of the lineup in some capacity or another, unless they're just flip-flopping and Gurriel is DHing, which it may also be that just to give uh, Gurriel some, some time off. And I think that's probably the most important thing is between Gurriel, uh, Gurriel's 37, Brantley's 34. I don't think Altuve, Jose Altuve is DH much, but he's 31. Yeah, in particular, Brantley and Gurriel, you want to get those guys off their legs if you can. So being able to give Alvarez some time in the field and one of those guys some time at DH is probably helpful. Like I said, the, the one problem you run into is that one of those two guys will have to sit and you are replacing them with one of a lead Miss Diaz or Chaz McCormick or... I suppose Jose Siri, but you know, I, there's nothing else. Those are fine options. This is not something that's going to hurt the Astros if they have to do it once every now and again. And I imagine too, it's not just about what it means for this season, but also going forward. Uh, given that you know, one Alvarez is only 24, and you just you don't want a, a, a DH only at the age of 24, or 25. That's not something that really I, I think makes a whole lot of sense. But on top of that, next year is Gurriel's last year under contract. He's got an $8 million team option that's almost certainly going to be picked up. Uh, Brantley has another year left on his deal for $16 million, and then he will be out of contract. Both of those guys are unlikely to come back beyond 2022, I imagine, just by sheer virtue of age. So on top of that, you want a guy who can get, into, who can get at first base if you do want to try to figure out your first baseman of the future. I unfortunately don't know the Astros system well enough to know what they have elsewhere in their system. If this is something that also reflects a, a lack of high-end corner infield prospects within their system, I would guess probably not that this is really just about let's just see if we can get the guy working. But, you know, it certainly doesn't hurt. And now just looking at the Astros' top prospect list coming into the season, yeah, first base is a real hole for them. So corner infield in general is kind of a hole for them. And that'll change over time because some guys will move from, from one position to another. But right now, they, they especially don't have that, that guy uh, in the high minors who can function for them either as a backup first baseman or a depth first baseman. or just. And I think that's it. It's just giving them the depth option at first base that they kind of lack right now and making sure that they can keep some guys healthy. And I think that, that makes perfect sense to me. I agree. Um, Michael Conforto, he is going to be up for a payday maybe this winter. Um, the market, like they're going to extend a qualifying offer to him, the Mets being that team. But what do you what do you think his his just his free agent prospects really are? Because I feel like he's a really hard person to gauge what teams are going to throw at him. Yeah, because part of the problem with Conforto is he is defensively awful. And defensively awful in a way that is, like, obvious. This is not someone where it's, you know, you you're, you're feel like you're picking nits by saying, oh, he's not actually particularly... No, Michael Conforto's a terrible outfielder. And really, you, you sign... Not, not only do you... And so any team that signs him signs him not only knowing that in the present he is a terrible outfielder, but also in the future he's going to get worse. So that's already a problem in and of itself. You're signing a guy whose future defensive home... In, a sh- in the short term, much less the long term, is going to be DH. So unless, I mean, I assume the universal DH is coming and that that will help, 
but other if it you know depending how long that takes it's going to limit Conforto's market right from the get go probably to AL teams who can stand a bad corner outfielder but would prefer putting him in the corner or in a, at DH. The good news for Conforto is that the outfield market is really terrible this offseason. Uh, the top player available aside from him is Nick Castellanos, who I assume will get the most money from whoever. Um, Castellanos, at this point, I think just profiles as a better right-handed version of Conforto. Well, the thing about those two is interesting to me is that, like, do you think, I mean, he's still not that old, but, like, I mean, it's more of, like, you know what you're getting in Castellanos. Castellanos, if he's on the field, but like, yeah. there's still the question mark of Michael Conforto. They're still like, oh, yeah, we, the, right. It's I, just very different. There's, there's probably that feeling that Conforto hasn't hit his ceiling let, right. yet, and you can argue he hasn't. I mean, he has shown he showed in 2017, which is his best full season to date, what he's capable of. He was very good last year in the shortened season. Hasn't been as good this year, I think, in part because he's coming off injury, uh, and in part because. Well, I actually don't, it's, it's it's hard to tell exactly what's wrong with with Michael Conforto, and that's kind of the other thing. If you're a team looking at Conforto this offseason, looking at the bad numbers he's put up this year, you know, and you're wondering, well, what exactly what exactly has gone wrong here? You know, uh, the the walk rate has actually improved from last year. The strikeouts are down. Big issue right now: batting average on balls in play is not helping. The the extended peripherals suggest, or the extended peripherals, the the peripherals do suggest that he has had he has run into some bad luck but you know you, you do have to i guess worry a bit even with that that this has been a really bad season i guess counterpoint uh his hard hit rate is a career high since 2017 he has a solid enough barrel rate uh long angle remains virtually unchanged over the course of time you know the x woba right now is 353 that's still a dip from where he has been at his peak but it does suggest that there is something going on under the surface here that may not be entirely his fault. Like I said, though, I think the question is, one, where do you play him? And that's already its own question. He is a corner outfielder at best and a bad one at that. So you're already kind of limited in that regard. But he does have the, he does have two things going in his favor. One is he's young. He, is, uh, he won't turn 29 until next March. He is going to be the youngest available position player – or sorry, the youngest available free agent outfielder on the market, bar, uh, leaving aside – uh, whatever non-tenders and releases and, and whatnot happens, but in a norm, at least in a normal world, he is. And beyond Castellanos, there's not really a whole lot of competition for him. Uh, you have guys like Andrew McCutcheon and Ian, or not Ian Desmond, sorry, Andrew McCutcheon and AJ Pollock and Avisayo Garcia, who are more part-time players or second division players. You have fading veterans like Charlie Blackman uh, or... Cole Calhoun, who are very unlikely to pull down starting jobs anymore and are more likely to get at best reserve roles, if even that. And then you have guys who are even bigger headaches and question marks in terms of what they offer than Conforto, like Tommy Pham or Eddie Rosario or Jack Peterson, uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. Yeah, that there there are guys where you, you just don't they don't even have the the floor it seemingly that that Conforto does. And of those guys, only Pham I would argue really has the same kind of ceiling. Mm. So, but. Taking on Tommy Pham at this point, who also will be 34 next year and is very clearly not. Uh, will he really be 34 next year? Either. Um, That's wild. Yeah, I think that that all bodes well for for Conforto. It's just a matter of how do you figure out what happened this season and what do you do about the fact that defensively he is a DH. He's going to be a full time DH probably by the time he turns 30. Hmm. I don't know what that looks like. I mean, I, I genuinely don't because he's not a he's not he doesn't hit well enough to be in that JD Martinez category of we can live with you at DH all the time because you are an elite hitter. He needs to hit better to do that. And 
or he needs to become a better fielder one way or the other. Old friend Dayton Moore got a promotion in Kansas City and JJ Piccolo. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that last name correctly. Um, Dude, I think it'd be Blake Piccolo. Like the is instrument. it Piccolo? Like the little wood flute. Is that how you spell Piccolo though? Yeah, same spelling. Okay. Is it? Okay. Well, there you go. Um, never played piccolo. Not a big band guy. The smallest member of the flute family. Is it true? Yes. Were you in band? Uh, no, I just looked that up really quickly. Because oh, okay. I also wanted to make sure I had the right thing in mind. Because the other piccolo in my mind is the character from Dragon Ball Z. Uh-huh. And I, I don't think that's a, a reference that J.J. Piccolo is probably going to get or make. So No. No. Um, but what do you make of it? A little bit of a shakeup, more thing. He he basically has like a life turn, lifetime deal in Kansas City. It's like yeah, whatever that, he wants that's to more move what it on. Feels like. I yeah. think I think this is more more one more moving away from more of the day to day stuff and probably more of a kind of overseeing role. Uh, Piccolo was the farm director under Moore, so it makes sense that he would get the bump up because a lot of Kansas City's success or and or moves are kind of built off of the guys they do they do have brought out of that farm system and certainly that system has produced some some very uh, impressive players over the last really decade i don't know exactly how long piccolo has been and i'm not just going to check that now but um ah, baseball reference doesn't even have that either way it makes sense it's it's one of those things that reminds me of theo epstein moving up to and promoting uh jed hoyer to take over his job basically I don't know if that means that Moore is in that same mindset of, I think my time running a baseball front office is coming to an end. I wouldn't be surprised if that does come to an end within the next few years. He has been in charge of that team for a very, very long time. He has done a mostly okay job. I mean, obviously he has the one World Series win, uh, which they can never take that away from you. But at the same time, other than that, Kansas City has been kind of just there for a large portion of the 16 years he's been in charge. They've been mostly a rebuilding team just moving in and out of different cycles of rebuilding. Uh, they've obviously been in a rebuilding phase pretty much since that World Series win. 2017 was really their last kind of hurrah when they almost had the Astros out and then Houston uh, bounced back in the division series to knock them out. Everything since then has been a very long and slow process of kind of trying to find that next Royals core. I think there is where you can say the results are kind of mixed, to say the least. Um Certainly, Sally Perez has been a revelation late in his career in that extension. Was already uh, already looked all right. Now looks great if he can stay healthy. Uh, Nicky Lopez quietly looking like a, a useful middle infield option. We talked about Adalberto Mondesi last week and what needs to happen there, but still obviously a ton of talent there. But then you look at the guys like Hunter Dozier, who's taken a step back, or Andrew Benintendi, who you know they got this season and never really went anywhere. Michael A. Taylor, who's already off the roster. Uh, you know, there hasn't been a whole lot of progress, I feel like, with the Royals in the course of their rebuild. And even now, you know, in year, what is this, basically four, in the fourth in the fourth year of this, they are still a below 500 team, albeit posting the best winning percentage they've had in those four years at just shy of 500. But at the same time, that's just shy of 500 in a bad division with no real competition for them. So... I don't know. I, 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 I can see eventually more just walking away, uh, just deciding he has done. He has done all he can do. If nothing else, he leaves Kansas City in a position where there is a lot of young talent there. It's just a question of how it develops and who can develop it. But, you know, I, I have to imagine more at the very least wants to see the fruits of this team uh, succeed and wants to see what that looks like before he steps away. But this, this to me feels more like I don't want to be as much in charge of the day to day stuff anymore because I have 
whatever reason I have for that. And again, it's been it's been 15 years since Dayton Moore or the Dayton Moore has been GM of this team. You know, that's a very long time. I think it's one of the if not the longest tenure GM currently is very high up there. Uh, sorry, it's got to be Brian Cashman as the longest tenured at this point, but or whatever the title now consists of, because it, everyone has 15 different titles for who runs mm-hmm. the front office. So if nothing else, he has been in charge in Kansas City for a long time. Um, and I think it makes sense to kind of start making that transition toward the person who's next going to run that team. And it does look like that is going to be J.J. Piccolo, who is going to have a, a few decisions to make. First, you know, first of which is. You know, do we kind of want to run it back again next year with the same core and that same strategy we had of kind of picking up these uh, bargain free agents and seeing if they can contribute? And second, is Mike Matheny the guy that we want doing that? Because, I mean, I I can only speak from what I see on the outside. I never have thought of Matheny as a particularly good manager. I thought he inherited some good Cardinals teams that he then just mismanaged hideously in the postseason. I don't know if he's gotten any better. I honestly have not watched terribly much Royals baseball this year, but... Uh, I, I personally doubt that Matheny is the guy to take the Royals there, but that is also something I think that is in line with who Moore is and who the owners of the Royals are and their their emphasis and focus on, you know, not just kind of old school baseball, but also, uh, you know, an ethical and moral kind of code, I guess if you want to call it. Um, I don't know. Maybe Dayton Moore is re- is retired is decided he wants to spend more time not looking at pornography and that's why he doesn't <laughs> want to be the GM anymore. I don't know, but. I think it makes sense for everyone in Kansas City, though, that, you know, I, I think this is probably the indication that a transition is about to begin or a transition is starting and that this will no longer be Dayton Moore's team uh, in in the next few years. Yankees, they moved Gleyber Torres to second base. Yes, I'm amazed it took them this long. Mm. Not a shortstop. No, he's just not even even as a prospect, even as a minor leaguer, most talent evaluators worked under the assumption that he's an OK shortstop now, but that's not going to last very long. Second base is his long term home. Yeah, and he's probably just hoping that the New York Yankees are still his long term home. Um, we'll wrap up with this, John, a better playoff story for you, the M's or the Blue Jays making it through to the these last few weeks. Who would you think is the better story? So before I answer that, I just um, since you mentioned it with Torres, I will say that he is in a scary position roster-wise this offseason because of, one, the number of very quality shortstops will be available on the right. market, led, of course, by Carlos Correa and Corey Seager, but also including Javi Baez, who can also play second base if that's what the Yankees want. Second, if they if they want to focus instead on second base, not only do they have Baez, but they also have Marcus Semien, who is going to finish top five in the MVP voting and is a perfect top of the lineup option for them if they feel like DJ LeMahieu needs to be moved down. So yeah, Glaber is not in a fun spot. I can't imagine the Yankees are going to give up on him completely. I mean, they still have Gary Sanchez at this point in that he has mostly rewarded them by looking at least competent again. So I imagine the hope is that let's put Glaber at second, let's give him some time, but I have to imagine that the Glaber at shortstop is over and that you are going to see the Yankees go very hard after one of Seager or Correa or Javi Baez or whoever it happens to be. As to the more fun play, as to the playoff team, I want to see. I know which team will be way more fun, mm. and that's the Blue Jays, the team with Robbie Ray and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Marcus Semien and George Springer and uh, <laughs> I, I could go on for a while and Bo Bichette and and Hyunjin Ryu and and Jordan Romano and on and on and on and on. And meanwhile, the Mariners have. Who is on the Mariners besides Mitch Hanniger? Help me out. <laughs> J.P. Crawford. Yeah, it's just. I think that the that's Kyle just the reality is gone for of, the year. 
Toronto is a better team, mm. just a better overall team from top to bottom. And when it comes to the playoffs, I, I feel bad for I obviously have a lot of sympathy for Mariners fans. This franchise has been a joke for the most part of the last 20 years. They've wasted the careers of two of the greatest players they've ever seen and will ever see in Ichiro Suzuki and 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 uh, wow. And Felix Hernandez. Um, obviously, they have the very long playoff drought that they have been in for down 20 seasons. But this is not a fun team to watch. This is not a good team. This is a mediocre team that is coasting by on some way better than expected uh, luck when it comes to stuff like run differential. By run differential, this is a team that is that should be 13 games below 500. They should be in last place in the or not last place in the West because Texas has that taken care of. But they should be floating around down there, not in a not in a wild card race. And that's a testament to the Mariners continuing to fight. But it also suggests that one, this is not a playoff team. This is just a team that's getting lucky a lot. Two, if they do get into the postseason, they are going to get utterly waxed by whoever wins the wild card and if not them whoever the number one seed in the al is which is uh, almost certainly gonna be tampa and boy a tampa seattle postseason series Ugh. just you talk about just boring top to bottom even the rays being as good a team as they are that is just stultifying baseball to consider marco gonzalez against drew rasmussen in the postseason please god no like just give me guys who are cool Mm. The postseason. Oh, so you want the Cardinals? You heard it here first. John Taylor wants Cardinals, Dodgers, and the Cardinals knocking out the Dodgers. Cardinals, Dodgers, because it's going to make every Dodgers fan have a heart attack. Because they all they're all going into that game thinking that they're going to lose. I'm going into that game expecting them to lose. If we get Cardinals, Dodgers, the Dodgers are losing that game. Yeah, probably. I would. I would. I honestly would probably pick that. But just because I I can't resist the laughs. But I really want it to happen. I, but, you know, the other part of me is like, no, I want the Reds to do it. They've been good. The Reds have like they have a fun young team. They like this is probably it for Castellanos there. I kind of like, no, I want the Reds because, you know what? They've at least tried more than a lot of other teams in Major yeah, League Baseball. That's, that's, but that's also part of it is that it's when it comes to the postseason, you don't want just want the best teams. You want the coolest teams. You want right. the guys with the fun players and the cool players and the great players, because that's what you want to see in the postseason. There's, there's really, I don't think aside from folks in St. Louis that there's anyone who wants to see. Well, I would love to see Adam Wainwright make another postseason star. What he's done this season has been phenomenal. I'd love to see Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado take postseason at bats. But I think overall that that Cincinnati team is just more interesting mm-hmm. between the like the hitters they have, like you mentioned with Castellanos. And is Sunny Gray starting have. that? Plus, we might get a Wade Miley postseason start. Oh, How Wade Miley. Oh, okay. Wade yeah. Miley, postseason starter. <laughs> I it's love it. It's real and it's happening. Gosh, that would be so much fun. John Taylor, what uh, can we check out from you and the good folks at fangraphs.com this week? So, if you've been on fangraphs this week, you've seen Jay Jaffe's a uh, couple of his team entropy pieces, this is his annual thing where he tracks uh, the possibility of massive tie scenarios for the divisions and wild cards. Obviously, only the NL West kind of falls under that category division-wise, but thankfully the AL and NL wildcard races have both been very loopy, so he's keeping track of that to see if we can get the most baseball humanly possible. Uh, Otherwise, we've got a piece uh, from Ben Clemens on how Toronto got back into the postseason. He's also got a series this week on both the worst bunts of the year and the best bunts, which I know doesn't sound that fun, but is genuinely a very fun thing to read about some terrible bunts. Plus all the latest news stuff. We had Dan Samborski on Glaber moving from short to second. Jay Jaffe wrote something on Ryan Braun. Uh, Dan also wrote something that was a really interesting debate 
that I you know I, I enjoyed about whether or not Yuli Gurriel and Jose Abreu, if you were to include their Cuban League stats and or you know basically give them credit for them, whether or not they would be Hall of Famers, I, you know it's it's a it's a very much a philosophical discussion of anything else, especially about what what the nature of the Hall of Fame is and who gets to be in the Hall of Fame if they are not major leaguers. But you know that that's what we have on the site right now. Uh, we'll also have something from Jay at the end of the week on what happened to the Padres and Mets and how their collapses are pretty historic. Plus something from Kevin Goldstein on how front offices operate in the month of September, looking ahead both for teams looking ahead to the postseason and for teams who are looking ahead to uh, instructional league, fall league, and the offseason as a whole. All right. Well, keep up the great work and tell the good folks to keep turning on that great content. John Taylor. And again, if you have not already become a Fangraphs member, go ahead and do that today. Also, give John a follow on twitter.com at J.A. Taylor. John, I will talk to you next week, my friend. Sounds good. All right, hello and welcome back to the Chase Thomas podcast where I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas and I'm joined by a first-timer, Ben Anderson, who covers the Utah Jazz. Ben, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good, man. Um, what was the thing today? Like, what is that black and white jazz look that I saw on Twitter.com? Is that a real thing? Yeah, the jazz have been, you know, kind of, I, I've heard uh, through some people I know at the jazz that there's some conversation about maybe moving on or changing some of their colors or bringing in some different colors. And if you've looked at uh, what the new owner, Ryan Smith, has wanted and some of the things that Dwayne Wade, who's part a uh, part owner now, was kind of mentioned they want a little bit of a new look and and what they've been wearing specifically is black and white and then we get to go back to Vivint Arena where the Jazz play where the Jazz call home during the summer league because they host the little Salt Lake City summer league and a lot of the uh, color scheme had been changed to black and white so it kind of seemed like that was inevitable it seemed like it was heading in that direction uh, and then the photos leaked today from a local painting company that they had changed just the practice facility uh, it's theme to black and white as well so it looks like that's probably going to be an alternate color for the jazz i don't think it'll be their main look but uh, i think it's something the jazz would like to go to at least the new ownership would man that sucks <laughs> yeah black and white seems to be kind of a default that a lot yeah. of teams are going to and I red white and blue of, and black and white just too many teams yeah. are doing this yeah and i think it kind of actually takes the fun out of it i think you've actually looked at the the teams that have had the best jersey rollouts recently have been the most ambitious it's not the black mm-hmm. and white. It's not the Clippers. It's not the Nets, even though I think the Nets have done an okay job. Uh, it, it's like Miami going with those Vice City jerseys mm-hmm. that they had. I think those, you know, the Suns jersey last year, actually the Jazz dark mode jersey is really good. And they've kind of been outside the box thinking not, hey, we're going to simplify. We're going to go black and white. I think we're a little bit past that right now. Yeah. Well, um, Dwayne Wade, noted big super fan of the Chase Homes podcast. Uh, go ahead and circle back. Let's uh, let's go back to the drawing board. Let's not go all the way in here. Because um, I would rather watch a jazz game and not be wondering who I'm watching. Because that's the other annoying thing. It's like, what even is this? Like the amount of time... There was a game last year where the Lakers and the Celtics were both wearing just preposterous uniforms. Where it was like, I think the Lakers were in all white and the Celtics were in their black with green right. letter. It was ridiculous <laughs> yeah it's not unique you, no you, you want to have some personality and it's okay to pay homage to your you know your history and i think the jazz have actually you know i get that there's no jazz in utah i get that that's not part of the history but mm-hmm. you know it, it's still actually what i like is that it's part of the history of the team moving here and it does show that they were once in new orleans so i don't think you necessarily need to abandon that as a really really dumb naive 
middle schooler, I, I grew up thinking that jazz was a mountain range in Utah. I'd guess. You know, mountain ranges have weird – like nobody knows what the Wasatch is or the Oaks yeah. are. Those are mountain ranges in Utah. I don't know why those are names. Mm-hmm. could easily be the Jazz. There you go. There you go. Um, if you had to give a guess or a grade rather of the Utah Jazz offseason thus far, what would you give it? Because I am really, really high on what the Jazz did and where they're going next year. I think – the one home run they hit was re-signing Mike Conley. You, mm. you had to do that. If you didn't re-sign Mike Conley, your championship window was over. You didn't really have a chance to be as good as you were last year, no matter how good Donovan Mitchell or Rudy Gobert are. There's just not another guard in the lineup that can provide what Mike Conley did. You know, he gave you, what, 15 points and five assists and three rebounds last year or whatever it was. But he's so efficient. He's so good in the pick and roll. He made Rudy Gobert so much better. Rudy Gobert made him so much better. So if you didn't have him, it was going to put such a huge burden on Donovan Mitchell to be great. And he is great, but it's hard to do for 82 games when you're that young. And, and just don't – you're not huge. You know, he's six one. He's not six eight, six nine like some of these guys who are physically able to just carry a team based on their incredible athleticism. Donovan's a great physical specimen, but I just don't think his body can last like that when it needs to. So having Mike Conley back was a home run. Uh, I'll be curious what happens with Rudy Gay and what happens with Hassan Whiteside. I think Whiteside's a major question mark. Uh, and, and you saw Yudoka Azabuki during Summer League actually look really good. So if Whiteside looks like things aren't working out very well like they didn't in Sacramento last season, maybe you see Azabuki a little bit more. And w- I'll be curious to see how much you know Rudy Gay has in the tank. And I've certainly been wrong in some of these situations before, but he's probably a little bit closer to George Niang, who he's replacing than he was prime Rudy Gay, you know, the guy who was scoring 20 points when he was in Toronto and Sacramento. He's probably not that guy anymore. So he's good. I think his veteran experience will help late in games where George Niang was still pretty green. But actually, you know, day-to-day, game-to-game, first quarter through third quarter, I don't know if he makes as enormous a difference as I think a lot of Jazz fans would hope. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I think, I mean, he's penciled in at the starting four right now, right? He, no, he'll come off the bench. I think I think he'll probably be getting around 20 minutes. You're going to have Royce O'Neal still starting at the four because okay. he's the Jazz best defender, and he can kind of guard one through four if he needs to. He's not great at it, but but he's by far their best option, and they don't have many great defenders other than Rudy Gobert, so they need a guy who can move his feet on the wing. Uh, and then Boyan Bogdanovich is just too good not to have in the starting lineup. So you'll have the same five next year, Conley, Donovan Mitchell, O'Neal and Boyan Bogdanovich at either forward spot, however you look at it, and then Rudy Gobert at the five. And then I think your sixth man is probably going to be Rudy Gay, but it could be Joe Ingles. It could be Jordan Clarkson who won sixth man of the year last year. Uh, the Jazz don't seem to really want to play Jordan Clarkson more than 25 minutes. It seems like, in my theory, his efficiency drops off at that point mm. uh, because he just plays with so much energy that you really don't want to have him out there when he gets tired. Uh, but but I think he helps. I think, speaking of Rudy Gay, I think he certainly brings in some experience. So any given night, he'll be that kind of sixth through eighth man. And the way Quinn Snyder runs his very rigid rotations, you know, they'll all sub in together and sub out together. It'll be very structured. Clarkson's like that starter who he get, you, you're comfortable with him through two times to the order. And then the third time, you're like, no, no, no. You're not getting a third at bat, third third time through this this batting yeah, order. Well, yeah, yeah. once you realize, okay, this is what he's doing tonight, or his mm-hmm. three-point shot's working, or he's getting into the paint, once you've kind of seen it, like you're saying, that third time through, you start to lose some of the efficacy, which is why he doesn't close games, You know, which is why, as good as he is, he doesn't play a whole lot of minutes in the fourth quarter. I mean, he still plays some, certainly, but he's on the bench to close games, even though he can hit big shots. You just you realize late, teams start taking things away from him, or he starts thinking it's Jordan Clarkson time, which works incredibly well 
most of the time, but late, you probably need a little better execution. To be fair, I would imagine that Jordan Clarkson always thinks it's Jordan Jordan Clarkson time. I, and, I don't and the Jazz see so yeah. desperately needed that. You know, <laughs> they had a bench with Dante Exum and, and mm-hmm. you know, Derek Favors and these guys who just could not really ever score the ball. And you needed a guy who could go out there and say, I'm going to get a bucket and, and, you know, watch me do that. And really the great six men historically have traditionally done that, whether you look at, you know, uh, Jamal Crawford or, or, or some of these guys who have won Lou Williams multiple times. They, they know how to get buckets, and, and for whatever reason, they don't fit ideally as a starter, but they're incredible coming off the bench, and that's that's exactly the prototype that Jordan Clarkson fits. Are you worried about their wing depth? No, I think they got... I, I guess the wing will be a little curious, depending on what they think of Eric Pascal. Uh, Bogdanovich can play on the wing. Obviously, he's so three-point oriented. He's not much of a defender. Royce O'Neal is a very good player, but probably played too many minutes last year. He was up around 33 or 34. I think he might have played the first or second most minutes on the jazz last season. I think that would surprise a lot of people, but he doesn't miss games and he plays a lot. So uh, he was up there and he's good. You know, he's one of the better role players in the NBA that people don't talk about a whole lot. Rudy Gay, I think is very solid. And then do you have that fourth guy? And will Quinn Snyder even use a fourth guy? That's what my, my question has been. Quinn runs a really tight nine man rotation. Uh, It's four guards, it's two centers and then three wings. And I don't know if there's going to be a spot for that that fourth guy to come in and play on the wing, which would be Eric Pascal. But maybe you push Joe Ingles up a little bit and off the ball, and he can play at the three a little bit. He certainly can move well enough to still do that, and he's getting stronger uh, as he's kind of getting older and has that old man strength. I think he could play there a little bit. I think they want to put Pascal on the floor because they traded for him. I think that makes sense. Uh, but otherwise, I, I think they probably have depth, in fact, better than they did last year. But it's not the strength of the team is certainly not whether they're deepest zach Lowe was talking uh with chris herring on the low post today about the pressure on the jazz really getting through this year and really finding their way into to the nba finals do you do you think that that is what the what the case is behind the scenes and you tell that there is a lot of pressure on this team to finally get over the hump and and make the nba finals I don't think there's as much this year. Now, there's some reasons why that could be the case, namely that Joe Ingles is on an expiring one-year contract Mm -hmm. and this is his last season out there. Uh, But I think re-signing Mike Conley probably opens that championship window for at least two years and maybe three if they bring him back for that third season. It's only partially guaranteed, but it's a pretty big partial guarantee. It's like $10 million. Uh, So I, I think they've given themselves at least another two years. And it's kind of interesting if you look at how they operated the last two seasons when they signed or traded for Mike Conley the first time. It kind of felt like they gave themselves a two years window. It didn't work out very well the first year because Jeff Green didn't fit and Ed Davis didn't fit. So they had to make midseason moves and those got clunky and Mike Conley was hurt the whole time. And so they never really realized their potential that season. And then Mike Conley really fit in last year and figured it out. And then he got hurt in the postseason. We just never really got to see what that team would have looked like at full health. Maybe they still would have lost to the Clippers and the Clippers weren't fully healthy either. Uh, but I think the Jazz would have liked their chances certainly with a, a you know, an all-star point guard at full health versus basically not playing at all in that second series. So I, I think they probably feel comfortable that they have 24 months and not just 12 months. And it might be if things go well, as many as 36 months, we'll see what types of moves they make in the season. I'm not totally sold that they're done. They have so many guards. I mean, they really have six really good guards, in my opinion, four of them are going to play two of them. I think they would like to develop and get them on the floor somehow. But if that has to be in the G league, they'll probably be okay doing that this season. But considering they're in kind of a tough salary cap space, they could use draft picks or they could use another perimeter defender. 
those guys could be available at the trade deadline, some of those names. And, and so I don't think the Jazz are necessarily done dealing this season. And let's say you go out and get a guy in January or February at the trade deadline. You may not expect him to come in and help you win a championship in year one. And it may be more about a move of what he can do in year two, which is what they did with Jordan Clarkson, where they traded for him in December of 2019. He was pretty good that season, but then he won six man of the year in 2020, 2021. So they could give themselves that type of window as well. Who is the, the right kind of guy there? You know, it's it, here's the thing. Everyone wants these good perimeter defensive players that are 3 and D guys. And, of course, you should want them. Those, those guys seem to help you win championships. And then they're hard to find. You know, it, it, and, the, and when they are available, they don't generally come cheap. And when they come cheap, they generally don't turn out to be what you want. You know, who is it? Uh, uh, the Portland Trailblazers seemingly every year go out and sign somebody that looks mm-hmm. like he's going to come in and, and, you know, kind of fix their perimeter defense, whether that was what Derek Jones a couple of years ago, uh, who, who they've since traded. They've had Trevor Ariza. They've had Kent Bazemore. Like there's always this guy who you think is going to come in and be good on the, the perimeter to fix your defense. And they just rarely do that. So I, I'm not sure who that guy would be offhand. You know, Robert Covington's a name that kind of always floats around healed. with every team because you want him. Uh, because he ideally helps you win, and then he always is involved in trades for teams that say, like, yeah, he can probably help you win, but he didn't do everything we wanted. So th- those guys are out there. You're just looking for the right fit. And then sometimes maybe it's just, you know, these unheard of guys that you can get for cheap, you know, like a Wenyan Gabriel or somebody like that who, you know, clicks in his third season and realizes, hey, you know, I'm not a great scorer ever, but I'm going to be a good defensive player, and that's where I'm going to cut my teeth and make my money in the NBA the way Royce O'Neal kind of figured it out. Those guys seem to pop up kind of accidentally more so than saying, hey, we're going to target this elite perimeter defender and have him turn into Andre Iguodala. It just so rarely happens. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's true. I I would also keep keep uh, keep an eye on these Hawks wings, the Cam, the Herders. Like we're not going to be able to keep them all. As an Atlanta no, fan, we can't. And they're really good. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, if they decided midway through the season that, like, hey, Trey Young has too much, you know, there's too much weight on his shoulders and lose good, but they could use another six man that kind of distributes the ball or moves the ball. Mm-hmm. You could use a guy like Joe Ingles because 30 teams in the NBA could use a guy like Joe Ingles and the Jazz because his and his deals at $14 million and expiring. Right. And the Jazz could take back a defensive wing or a player like that from Atlanta where they're absolutely loaded with those types of guys but may want a veteran on an expiring contract that could, you know, look at how close Atlanta was last year. Joe Ingles is a difference maker. He could help get you closer to the conference finals, and that's a huge step. And he could teach Trey Young a lot of things on, you know, how to run a team, even though they're, they're kind of different types of players. But th- there's there's value in guys like Joe Ingles, and the Jazz could find value back. What is still missing in Donovan Mitchell's game? He's not a great defensive player. I don't know if he's ever going to be a great defensive player. I mean, he's talked about it quite a bit. He was just on a radio station here in Utah talking about how that's what he's been working on this offseason and just trying to get better. But, you know, the Jazz asked him to carry such a huge load offensively. And he's also just not huge. He's got really long arms. But like I said, he's only 6'1". You know, he's not this 6'3", 6'4 guy. So if he could step up and be one of those guys in the fourth quarter that, that gets a couple of key takeaways, and that's not the only, you know, trick to defense, obviously. you got to be stout everywhere. Uh, but so much of what the Jazz do is just redirecting everybody to Rudy Gobert, and we saw how that ended up kind of failing them in the playoffs, and when you can take Rudy Gobert out of the paint, that's not on Rudy, it's on the Jazz scheme uh, and, and the Jazz perimeter players' inability to keep anyone in front of them. If Donovan Mitchell could become more stout there as a guy who's very reliable on the perimeter of just saying, like, you know, he's not great, he's not locked down, he's not Gary Payton, but you're not going to beat him. You're at least not going to get into the paint every time you drive against him, which isn't the case, but he was hurt a little bit last season towards the end of the year, and that did look more like the case. 
Uh, if he can become better defensively, that would certainly help him. Offensively, I mean, what do you want? Top 20 scorer. He averages five assists. He grabs five rebounds. He's going to shoot over 40% from three this year on eight attempts a game. I mean, he's just he's freakish on that side of the ball, and he's only getting better. You know, you don't want to read into the offseason videos because they only show the makes, but his shot looks improved even there. So he, he's just going to continue to be a superstar on the offensive end if it can catch up a little bit on the defensive side of the ball. I think that's probably the biggest opportunity he has to impact the games in a different way. Interesting. Um, do you think there is anything about Conley that hinders his development? Like when they're on the floor together, is there anything that you notice that Conley might be a hindrance in Mitchell taking the next step? Is there Does their game complement seamlessly? Like what about those two in the backcourt in closing minutes? Two years yeah. ago, I would have said, yes, there's a hindrance or maybe okay. even a year ago because – you saw Mike Conley was out. You remember for those first two games against Denver in the playoffs last year in the bubble. And that's when Donovan Mitchell went off for 57 mm-hmm. in that first game because Donovan can play point guard and, and he needs to have the ball in his hands. I think Quinn Snyder actually solved that for him for the most part by almost kind of alternating their substitution patterns. You know, they start together and then Donovan comes out pretty or, or, or Mike Conley and, and Rudy and Rudy Gobert come out pretty early, excuse me. And then and then Donovan carries the team along with the bench unit. And then with about three minutes left, four minutes left in the first quarter, Donovan comes out after running basically point guard with Joe Ingles. And then uh, Mike Conley comes back in with Rudy Gobert and they'll play until about the eight minute mark of the second quarter. And then they go out and they come back in to end the half. And Donovan and, and Conley kind of switch positions there just so those guys can always be ball dominant. So the scheme has, I think, in some ways fixed it. Uh, I thought for a while Donovan Mitchell was going to have to be a better point guard, and that was going to kind of be his future role, and he's certainly capable of doing it. I still think you're seeing more how easy it was for him this season to be a great scorer when he doesn't have that much pressure as a playmaker. And Mike Conley just got so much more comfortable playing with this team and playing with Gobert that I think it actually helped both of them. Interesting. Your final expectations going into to the new season, do you think this is a finals team? Uh, they should fully be expected to compete for home court advantage, at least in the first two rounds of the playoffs again, which mm-hmm. is the top, you know, two or three seed, uh, minus injuries and how the Jazz decide to rest players this year. Because you got to remember, uh, Rudy Gobert and Joe Ingles both played in the Olympics this season, and that's going to take a lot out of them. You know, I, I think maybe you got to be extra careful, and you've kind of played two seasons in really quick succession in the last couple of years, so you're going to want to give guys, I think, extra nights off. So as long as the Jazz aren't you know, totally hindered by injuries or guys only playing 60 games because they're being super conservative about getting healthy to the playoffs, they should win 55 games. And then you got to hope that everyone stays healthy. And if everyone's healthy, there's no reason why they can't be the Suns of last year that can make the finals. But also it just takes some luck, I think, at some point with how good the West is. You just got to avoid some matchups or catch some injuries. And maybe the fact that we don't know what's going to happen with Kawhi Leonard, we don't know how well the fit's going to be with Russ and everybody in, in L.A., Maybe they maybe those two teams just aren't what we thought, and that gives you the pathway to come back through and, and break through to the finals. So it's not the expectation. It's not finals or bust, uh, but they probably need to get to the conference finals. Okay. How do we check out your work this week? Uh, find me on Twitter at Ben's Hoops. Read me, as always, at kslsports.com. That's the best way to follow us. All right. Well, keep up the great work, sir. Enjoy this season. It's going to be here before you know it. Uh, thank you so much for the time, and stay safe out there, sir. Yeah, man. Thank you. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.